All right, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I thought I'd get through this chapter faster than I am, but there's so much here that is so hard to not appreciate. All right, I'm titled the message this morning, Life Motives 101. And I don't know if you're super familiar with your own motives, but they're very important to know something about, right? Because they're operating in you every day of your life. And like I just said, we tend to do the things that we're motivated to do. So we want to check into that and figure out why, why am I motivated to do certain things? So let me start with a question and you can, you have to think through your life with me for a second. Uh, what, what are you about to do? What are you about to do in your life? All right, so think, think in the categories of your existence. What are you about to do this week? What's on your calendar? What's in your schedule this week, this month? Maybe you've got something in the foreseeable future before the year ends. Certain things you're planning, you're thinking about. What are you about to do with the people in your life? Think practically. There's people in your life. There are people that you like in your life. What are you about to do with them? There are people that you don't like. In your life. There are people you're in conflict with. There are people that you're in so much conflict with. That's most of what you've been thinking about the whole time you've been here this morning. Is, is what to do with that situation. And your emotions rise up. And maybe you're infuriated. Maybe you've got a strategy. Maybe you've thought through this is what I'm finally going to say to them. And you finally got the words. And, and you're thinking about what are you going to do? What are you going to do with the, the new relationships that are in your life? You got some new relationships in your life? What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with the familiar ones? The ones that have just been around for a long, long time. Just kind of part of the landscape now in life. Right? In all these categories, we're about to do something or we're about to not do something. Right? Some of us aren't super aggressive, we're just super neglectful. So there's a lot of things that are going on in our life that we just, we just ain't going to do much with. Alright, so the question behind every one of those dimensions is, why are you about to do what you're about to do? What's informing you? And there's a lot, I could spend a lot of time just saying, be aware of the landscape of this world that you're living in. You know, our our world is an outraged world. Have you noticed that? A lot of people aren't going to do anything until they're outraged. And there's a lot of outrage available. You watch the news for a few seconds. Somebody is really mad about something. And they want you to be really mad about it too. And they don't even necessarily want you to agree with them. That's not enough anymore. Not only can you maybe come alongside their view, but, but they're looking for you to be angry with them just blown up about that thing and if you're not blown up about it it's not even okay that you agree with them at some level they demand outrage now right so this this is the stuff that we live in and there's motivations in every one of us and there's something's going to guide us into interacting with our life and the people in our life this week when we do life so this is life motives 101 the passage we're about to read has got two things in it it's got more than two, but, but there's two big categories. 
There's some practical things in this passage. A lot of us are drawn to the practical stuff, but there's some principles in this passage. The practical things tend to stay in one location. Some of them will stay in Corinth. And they're just practical things the Corinthians need to work out. Uh, We've got some practical things. But there's some principles that are going to escape Corinth and are going to travel into all the world. And they come to us today. And we're going to live in light of these principles too. And there's two particular principles here that I want us to take notice of. So with all that thought, let's read this passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. This is a, a familiar phrase. That's why it's being said over and over again. This is, they would have been familiar with this, like a colloquialism. All things are lawful, but, Paul says, not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. And for the sake of conscience. I I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Father, we are so grateful that in a world of noisy ideas, you have made your word available to us. I well, thank you that you've not left us to our own devices, to what's trendy and popular, to what only appeals to us, but you have given us wisdom and a living word for the lives that we're seeking to live. Lord, we're, sent, we're so thankful. Help us to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me jump into the practical category here. We can't overlook that Corinth is its own setting. This, these people have a background. They're going through some things. It's helpful for us to, to recognize what they're going through and what their experience is like. And the practical area for, for them kind of falls in the category of, so what'd you eat for dinner last night? All right, so it's pretty practical. It's living in the daily routines of you ate something and apparently there was more to it than just what you ate, where you ate, did you enjoy it? Was it good? There's a few other factors that are here. But you've got to go back to Corinth to get their setting a little bit here. So hopefully this one quote from Craig Blomberg will help us. He says, Most meat sold in the town marketplace came from sacrificial animals that had been slaughtered at pagan temple ceremonies. Did these rituals somehow automatically taint the food? Could Christians buy it 
Could they eat it if it was offered to them at a friend's home? What about the various social events, weddings, parties, clubs, and so on, which often used the temple dining halls for their festivities? Could Christians participate and eat meat at these events? What about more overtly religious rites in those temples? The issue clearly was not as simple or innocuous as it might at first glance seem to Westerners today. Right? If we walk the streets of, of Corinth back in the first century, not like many cities, probably if you know New York City is kind of famous for this, it's got little districts in it. You know, so you get the theater district where all the movie theater, or not the, the plays and uh, theaters take place. Uh, Different locations take on different aspects of, you know, Wall Street's got the whole commerce and the business activities. Well, in Corinth, you would have had something like that. But, you know, rather than a theater district, so to speak, you, you, would, have, you would have had an idolatry district. You would have had temples one after another. Remember, this, 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 this wasn't like America, right? You got one church on every corner. They had more like one idolatrous place to worship on every corner. And there was a variety of gods that were available to them. This is the Greeks. And so they had invented gods to worship that were related to needs in their lives. So whether it's Aphrodite or Apollo, Zeus, etc. They're all there. And there's a bit of commerce that goes on in relation to these temples. So there's sacrifices to appease these gods and... Meat is being offered to these gods in these sacrifices. But when they take the life of the animal in offering it to these idols, they would take the meat and they wouldn't just throw it away. They'd sell it. And so they'd bring that meat into the marketplace. And if you came in town and you wandered through the streets, you could walk up into a market that's selling meat that just hours before had been offered to one of these gods. So that's the setting that they're in. And their life is interwoven with these practices. You know, you might be invited to go to a festival, a party, a significant event, somebody's retiring, somebody's birthday party, a wedding reception. And they're looking for a place to hold it. Well, guess what? These temples had meeting places in them. And they had a catering service as well. And so if you were going to show up there, those were a place where a large group of people could gather and a large group of people could be fed. So you could show up at somebody's birthday party where all the folks in Corinth and some of the people in your church and they've all come and the menu breaks out and then there's this meet and there's this question of, was this offered to an idol or not? And so this kind of worked its way into the fellowship of the church and some people were okay with that. And some people were not. Some people got freaked out by it and and just began to question anybody who got involved in that. And some people worked their way through thinking that through differently. And decent conclusions get made on either side. So before we kind of take one side or the other, you know, you got to hear this verse. It goes in both directions, right? You've got verse 25 that's going to say, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace. Eat, Eat whatever. Right, So you're being told, okay, eat whatever. Well, why? Well, because the earth is the Lord's. God God owns everything. So eat whatever. Receive it graciously. And then just a little bit later, you're going to be told, but do not eat. (laughs) 
Wait, wait, you just said eat whatever. Oh, and then now I'm saying do not eat. All right, so even in this setting, this verse is not just this simple, absolute, always clear kind of an element. And so if you wanted to argue one side or the other, because these are the kind of things that we do like to argue about. So we're going to find our way into constructing an argument. And you can make an argument on both sides. All right, there's a perspective that eating meat is not a problem. Come on, guys, get over this. It's not a problem. No matter what these people did with that meat, before they did it and after they did it, it's just meat molecules, all right? No matter what hocus pocus was done over it, whatever, it was meat before they did that, it's meat after they do it. Eat up. And that's kind of true, right? All right. Well, not only that, spiritually. Hey, we know some things here. We know some things. There's some people that are practicing these ridiculous superstitions. Here's what we know. We know for sure there is only one God. Everything else is just created. There's one God. We know that for sure. There is no Aphrodite. There is no Apollos. We know there's one God. So whatever they're doing, that's just, that's just foolish. It's just ridiculous. These gods aren't real. We know that. Right? Now, they may think they're real. But just because they think they're real doesn't make them real. We know better. So Christians, we know whatever they just took this thing and went, and held it up. <laughs> There's nothing there. Right? So, eat up. And that's a decent argument. You can make that argument. And one of the things that's careful to be noticed here is, is Paul's philosophy of approaching this sort of an issue. We don't have this kind of issue exactly, but this is kind of how he says this. Now, here's an interesting little release point into this argument. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Listen, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. If an unbeliever invites you over to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. So don't feel like you've got to come to this person's house. And listen, before we sit down, could I ask you some questions? Right now, for some, they might feel obligated because they've been taught that if you engage this, Behind the scenes, there is this wrong that you're doing. And so their, their conscience now feels like they, they've got to search for the needle of evil in every haystack. And they've got to dig it out and find out, where's the evil? I know there's evil here. And they, and they feel obligated to do that. I think that's a problem. And I think this verse helps some of us to chill a little bit. Do you know who you are that needs to chill in this category? Right? There's some that are really, really jazzed up about these kinds of details. Right? This is an interesting thought from David Jackman. He says, this indicates that a Christian is not to be involved in detailed research over such matters to try to uncover any suspicion of evil in a fallen world. It will always be there, usually in large measure. But such an attitude will tend to make the investigator increasingly negative in attitude to both the people and the things of the world around them. Biblical theology takes up a different and much more positive standpoint, as the quotation from Psalm 24 makes clear. For the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. 
This reminds us of the important strand of world-affirming thankfulness in Paul's worldview. Rather than the world-negating criticism into which so many Christians seem to fall. We also need this corrective. As we delight in God, we delight also in the wonder, the beauty, the variety of the world that is his handiwork. Expressive of its creator's nature and character. It is entirely appropriate for Christians to be alive to all that is good in God's world. And to be able to be at home in any part of it. We rejoice in the myriad diversity of human achievement in which the creator's power and ingenuity are revealed in spite of the taint of human pride and rebellion. Sin and evil have not failed to get around to touching everything. If as a Christian, I'm thinking, I've got to go find those things in the created world that haven't been invaded by sin and evil. And those are the things that I can get around and that I can enjoy, that I can applaud and appreciate. Well, then you're not going to enjoy and applaud anything until you get to heaven. Because everything in this world has got corruption in it. It's decaying. It's self-centered in ways. It's being used for the advancement of man rather than the glory of God. Everything has that in it. Every company you do business with has got people in it that are going to do something evil with whatever money you just put in their pockets. Even if they're evil, isn't headline-making evil? It's still not about God. It's about building a world that doesn't look to God, need God, or want God. All right, so it is a challenge to figure out how, how do we engage this. All right, so some of these carriers, we just need to think more carefully about. Otherwise, we're going to die on these hills and kill each other on these hills. And you may have some convictions that you know, I don't, I don't want to do business with this business. And I don't, I don't want to go to that place. Okay. By all means, follow your conscience. Be led by God. But don't treat your attitude like a Bible verse and require anybody else to do what you're doing in that category. Anthony Thistleton says, A fussy overscrupulousness can sometimes raise needless complications, doubts, and questioning that may become inward-looking distractions, distractions. We make some of these things to be cornerstone issues. I mean, the first church of the whatever. And that church is known for its stance in one particular area. That's a distraction. It's distracting you. And it's distracting that church from the centrality of the gospel. When does a right sensitivity and moral integrity begin to degenerate into an obsessive overconcern to be right in every detail? <clears throat> this happens to us. Let me tell you that this happens for good reasons. There are good reasons why this happens. So don't, don't hate this point. The good reasons are that we are, we are led by a volume of truth. And we are a people of convictions. So if you think the alternative to what I'm saying right now is to just stop believing anything in an absolute way. That's not the alternative. This book is full of absolutes. 
But some of the things we're talking about aren't so absolute. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, eat whatever, and turn around and say, but don't eat. Because it's just kind of not so absolute, right? So here on the other side of the argument, there would be those with a perspective that eating meat is a problem, right? So we just talk, not a problem. Oh, but eating meat is a problem. And, And this gets informed by the human factors that are in our world. There there would be people who have a a misinformed conscience, belief system in them, that when we interact with other people, that's there, that's in them, that's going to foster some kind of an approach to life in them. So if that's a problem for them, then it's a problem for us. Because we're in relationship with each other and we care about one another. So, you know, this, this kind of collides, right, with the molecule meat argument. Because it's just not about just that. There's other elements here. And if you back up a little bit, there's another dimension here, right? We know there aren't any gods out there. There's only one God, etc., etc. But, you know, if you back up into verse 18, There's a little hint here that there's something more going on here than just a meal for some people, not for everybody, because please notice this, if this was true for everybody, Paul could never say, go ahead and eat and don't ask any questions. He couldn't say that because what is in this verse right here is a participation in something that I don't think is just there when you eat the meal. I think it's got to be a little bit more than that, right? So in verse 18, he says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar, right? So the Old Testament system that he's recognizing here is that the people of God came to worship God through the vehicles that God had created and their participation in the altar was an aspect of worship in their hearts toward God. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. All right, so on the one hand, there are no other gods. That's absolutely true. But in the spiritual world, this offering of things to these false deities puts you in the company with demonic activity. So even though you can reason in reality, not a one of those demons is a God because there's only one God and they're just created beings. And that's true. But something about this idol worship that was associated with this meat eating puts you in the company of, in the influence, in the neighborhood of participating in something that's got another layer to it, something spiritual. All right, so when, when I look at both of these sides, there are arguments to be made on both sides. Welcome to fellowship. Welcome to doing life together. And maybe you're saying, but you know, the first part of that totally I get. The second, Keith, no. Or maybe you're the person who says, no, the second, the second part. And finally, as a matter of fact, I didn't know if you were going to make that point. Glad you got around to that second point because that's really what this verse is about. Um, okay. This second part does say we are under obligation to others when we think about decisions that we're going to make. Can't change that. That's just a reality. 
N.T. Wright sums this thought up. He says, as with many things, the Christian is called to live in a world where there are some great moral absolutes and some gray areas in between. Problems arise, not just when people get confused over which is which, but when people who like absolutes try to eliminate gray areas and people who like gray areas try to eliminate absolutes. That, that little quote just got everybody. You can't escape. You're one of those people. And you want to force this argument into one of these categories. And you're not going to be able to. There's going to be conflicting perspectives. And I, and I love as much as Paul's trying to manage the, a little bit of the social chaos that's in this setting. You know, if you, if you pick this thought up and say, let me search for this elsewhere. Where else is this an issue in the New Testament church? Well, I wonder what, we don't have to wonder because we actually have meetings that got called. A meeting got called. Peter gets called to the principal's office over this. He went and had fellowship and ate with Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. <sighs> Peter, how could you? That the Jews, the believing Jews... And Paul, you just got finished saying, you know, don't, don't create an offense, right? I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. Peter, what were you thinking? You went and shared the gospel and had fellowship with the Gentiles. We need a meeting. Call a meeting. And all the Jews who love God and were Christians were offended and questioned what he did. Because they had a limited insight, and from their perspective, Peter mishandled that he did the wrong thing. But he didn't do the wrong thing. But it wasn't easy to see that, was it? Yet the Apostle Paul, teaching the Galatians that if you stick to circumcision the way you guys are trying to stick to circumcision, you have fallen from grace, you have negated the grace that is in Jesus Christ because you're trying to add to that something you do that qualifies you before God. You have blown grace out of the water. And then he turns around and circumcises Timothy. Did you know that's in the Bible, right? The guy who would blow you up over circumcision, circumcises one of his disciples. Some of these things are a little challenging to manage, aren't they? Just be careful what your attitude gets like in some of these areas. I think the, I think the principles that are here that we're going to jump into right now are much more clear and need to travel and guide us in a way that some of the practical elements don't always conclude matters, right? So I, I know we're here this morning. We've got our own social thoughts. We've got issues of alcohol for a Christian or not. Can Christians participate in the arts and entertainment or not? Is it okay to get a tattoo, maybe a body piercing or not? Right, so we've all got our categories. I'm, I'm going to go through a long list, but you got yours. That, you know, when somebody crosses into that category and does something in that category, you got thoughts, right? You come to life in some of these areas. All right. Can I just ask you to take all of those things and shove them to the periphery? Because unfortunately, too many Christians want to die on the practicals and ignore the principles. And without, without apology at all, the principles are much more important. 
So what Paul says here to guide me into these moments, because you, you may have some practicals that you've got some thoughts about, but God can invade you with some insights and principle issues that would change your view. But your argument could still be won the way you've always fought it. You can win it biblically. But you still circumcise Timothy? Listen, I could sit down with, you know, how arrogant is this? I could sit down with the Apostle Paul and correct him up one side and down the other. With his own words. Don't you love when people do that to you? I love when people, I don't love when people quote back to me what I've said. Because I know, I know what they're doing to me. (laughs) Be careful, right, as we seek to be kingdom of God people that we haven't lost the principles amidst the little practical elements that we're trying to attach them to, right? So here's the principles. Two things, one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. I think the governing principle of life is so whether... You eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's why I ask you this question, what are you about to do? You're about to do something. You're about to retaliate. You're about to cave in. You're about to withdraw. You're about to give somebody the cold treatment. Whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. And then the second thing he adds in here is in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is welcome to Life Motivation 101. I don't, know, I don't know, for instance, what may have been motivating you and me as we navigated this past week, navigated this past year. We've got people in our lives. We've got some people who are no longer in our lives. What was motivating me when I made those decisions? Well, today is motivation 101. I, I want to learn from the scriptures what needed to have been and what needs to be motivating me every moment from now on. And so this first one, I think, governs all the rest. One, I am motivated for the glory of God. If there's anything about my life that I have got to get in touch with more deeply, got to stay in touch with more deeply, is that that principle, I exist for the glory of God. My life is for the glory of God. That's, that's got to operate In every breath I take, it's got to be behind everything I think and do and don't do and avoid and run toward and consider or blow off. It it, it can't just be about whatever it is in me that's drawn to do things, my own style, my own way, my personality. It's, It's got to answer to that for the glory of God. Now, I'm very tempted to run off in a direction here that I'm not going to do. So I'm going to fly through this point, which is very hard to do. One of of the favorite all-time series that we ever did on Sunday morning is from the late 1990s. And it's called Beholding His Glory. Some of you guys who have been here long enough might remember some from that series. Uh, That's pre-Katrina, so everything we had was lost. And I have like even a corrupted computer file that I can't even get back into clearly to see it all. But it was like a 16-part study on the glory of God. 
Because there's nothing more important for you and I to know than the glory of God. Nothing. Because when the Bible turns around and says all things exist for the glory of God, I might want to know what it's talking about. Because it just made a statement that is defining my existence. And if I'm ever going to find fulfillment, if I'm ever going to lead a meaningful life, if I'm ever ever going to be happy, my life is going to have to answer to my purpose. Not whatever the latest little thing that came along got my attention. Not what makes me uniquely me. But that I am made for the glory of God. Right, that word glory, it's an interesting word. The Hebrew word for it is chabad. It, it's a word, and I, I take this from my nerdy engineering days. Uh, this is not how the guys who do the language would define it. But for me, that word is like the word density. All right, when you come to something and you want to know something about the nature of it. Density is one of the words that in the nerdy engineering world, all you engineers, you're following me. Uh, we want to know the density of something. Right? And you know the density of, of styrofoam versus lead. Right? If I put a square block of styrofoam right here and I put a square block of lead right here, what would it be that would make one harder to pick up than the other? It would be their qualities, their nature, the density of the molecule structure that's packed together. Well, this word kavad is, is sort of like that. It's a description of God's weightiness, of what he's made of, of his character and his nature what his style is like, his personality is like. This is the glory of God. And then this is how God carries this glory. This is the agenda for the nature and the glory of God. And you find it all over the Bible. Here's a quick few passages there. Isaiah 43, verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, everyone, everyone who belongs to me, and whom I have created... For my glory. Everyone whom I have created for my glory. Before Adam and Eve existed, he created them. God, why? For my glory. And then those who come after Adam and Eve, why are they on this planet? For my glory and then eventually time passes and people pass and here we are poof and we come into existence why am i here for his glory this there cannot be a more important statement that you and i could ever come to grips with in our lives i don't know whatever it is that gives you identity And me identity. Whatever it is I'm good at. Whatever when I was little. Somebody noticed and applauded it a few times. And it took me to 38 years old to stop responding to grandmas. And then you know I'm 38. I'm finally like what do I want to do with my life? You know. Well you know you were an athlete. I know. You weren't that good. But your grandparents thought you were. You know. And so you just live your life out of these things. You get to be like 38 years old. And you go maybe I should go back to school. Uh, At some point, I need this statement to tell me, why do I exist for his glory? And that's why I'm in relationship with him. Those whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Verse 21, the people whom I have formed for myself will declare my praise. They're going to make known the glory of God. 
Later Isaiah says in chapter 49, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Right? So God creates this nation, and you got this whole story from the Bible in the Old Testament. You got this Old Testament kingdom thing happening. You got a nation that gets picked. We follow the storyline. Do we ever overlook why? Why did God choose a nation? Why are they specially His? Well, this is why. So I will show my glory. But this is not new. This is not like God had a second thought. When God created man uniquely in the Garden of Eden, his purpose was to show the image of God. Right? You go all the way back to the very beginning, the first human beings that you and I are related to. Let us, God says, make man in our image. Male and female. commentary for the front row sorry (laughs) all right so this is God's game plan God creates if you will a a canvas creates gardens and mountains and streams and oceans canvas into which he's going to set his image his being his nature his character his glory To do that, he's going to create creatures that can uniquely bring that into his creation. And their names are Adam and Eve. And they exist to image God. To take the nature and character and glory of God and to bring it into his creation. That's why they exist. Listen, I just chased this thought just for a second. But you, know, you live in a world that's, that's so upside down. And, and you know, if you're a Christian today and you're casual about the Bible, you, you're just in trouble. Right? Our world makes it sound like, it just feels like it's even right, that people should have the right to choose their own gender. Right? I mean, some of us are old enough to think, that thought wasn't around a few years ago. No one thought that way. But if you're, you know, 35 and under, that thought is pretty common. Everybody thinks that way. So you're wondering, what's the big deal? Why don't you Christians chill out a little bit? All right, so the guy wants to be a girl. Chill. That's up to them. Why does it matter what they do? Why are you so freaked out? Let them do whatever it is they want to do. You do what you do and let them do what they do. Now that reasoning sounds right, doesn't it? It It feels right. And I'm not saying that we as believers are here to force people to do things. We're not. But we are here as image bearers of God. And do you know why this gender issue matters? Because God doesn't get out of the first sentence when he says, here's why man exists. When he says, let us make man in our own image, male and female. So what God did was he said, you know, in order for my image to be seen, it will take the unique qualities that we're going to put in a man and the unique qualities we're going to put in a woman and together they will create an image of my character and what I'm like. But it'll take both of them, both of them playing their role. 
So when you and I go to figure out what am, who am I in this world? Well, I exist for the glory of God. I exist to image him. If you are a woman, then be fully a woman. If you are a man, then be fully a man and make no apology about it. You exist for the glory of God. Now, I, I realize we live in an, in an age where, where well, what if there's confusion? What if there's, what if there's just inner workings and challenges for someone to come to grips with that? I, I think we should have compassion and care for people who are in confusion in any category in their life. How many of y'all have been confused in your life? Come on. I have. I still am. And I thank God for his grace that comes and finds me in my confusion. So this is not a lesson on how to be obnoxious, okay? Please don't, don't take this and become obnoxious with it. But it is an awareness that there's something that defines us before you and I arrive. And it's the glory of God. Things exist for his glory. Ezekiel said, I shall set my glory among the nations. God is always setting his glory in places. 1 Peter 4.11 So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. All right, that's a deep theological statement right there because there's no way. There's no way to get to the glorification of God apart from Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. What are the excellencies? They're the glories of God. They're the character, the nature, the splendor, the beauty, the wonder. Power of God on display. That's why you exist. Your life has a wonderful purpose for it. If you're here this morning... And just more and more people are finding themselves in this category. We are doing more counseling with people where the the word suicide comes up than ever, ever. Because there's something about missing this point that leaves you shopping in a world that's going to leave you full of nothing. You're going to feel drastically empty. And that emptiness will look to be turned off somehow. And suicide feels like it might just do that for you. Listen, this is the wonderful answer. You exist in God's plan for an incredible reason, for an adventurous reason. Listen, I, you know, maybe you grew up and, you know, I grew up, I wanted to be an athlete. I, you know, I, I wanted to express, if you will, the glory of being an athlete. I thought that was going to be a blast. There was a lot that I liked about that. Just the, the play dimension, the, the growing and becoming good at something dimension, the notoriety dimension. All those things were just very, very attractive. I, I could get to express the glory of being an athlete. I don't know. Okay, so whatever it is that you have grown up thinking, when I grow up, I want to express the glory of, of what? Of what? Being wealthy? Being powerful? Being a politician? What was it that came into your value system? Wanted to be a wife? Wanted the glory of being a mom? Right? And, You have a higher calling than that. Your life exists for better reasons than that. So if the bottom falls out of any of those dreams, they were never the cornerstone for why you existed in the first place. You exist for the glory of God. This is a great thought from J.I. Packer. This is Knowing God. I've referenced this book before. You don't get into heaven without having read this. (laughs) The entire book, by the way. Not just this quote. 
He says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This is so true. Life just seems to be taking one off course turn after another, doesn't it? Why did this happen? How did I get here? Why does this feel this way? Why that tragic loss? How come that dream never came true? Why did it come true for them and not for me? These are torturous questions, aren't they? These are the things that make us ask for a refund. How did I get stuck with this? As, As opposed to what? What were you thinking you were going to get? What what purpose are you trying to make your life answer to? Does your story fit into God's story? That's no small issue. I'm a character in the big grand story of God. I don't know if any of you guys were like, Characters in a play when you're in high school, you know. Some people had leading roles. Some, some people just went on and had a half a line and that was it. That was it. But that was their part in the play. Listen, the reality is I, I do need to learn to take great joy in the fact that whatever it is God has called me to brings him great joy. Whatever that is. It doesn't have to be what you're doing. It doesn't have to measure up to what you've done or what somebody else has done or anybody else who's like me. I'm I'm just fulfilling what God has given to me. And the greatest thing, the greatest audience that I could be living that for is the one God for whom it is all being given gloriously. But, but, But God is up to something. God is up to something. It's not just a matter of whether our life is traveling the path we wanted for it. God is up to something. The path that we're on is about what God's up to. He's faithfully directing that. When you lose sight of that, your life every day feels like a square peg in a round hole experience. Just every day I'm trying and I don't feel this and it doesn't feel right and why and I'm disappointed and disillusioned and then my hopes get up for a little bit of something that's coming and then it doesn't fix me and I go back to feeling the way I was before that there's no greater revelation than to realize all things exist for the glory of God. My story is tucked inside of God's bigger story. And it answers to that purpose. And I need to learn to value that. And listen, I want to be careful how I just said that. I don't want to learn to, quote, be okay with that. Just learn to be okay with that. Some of y'all got a really cool role in the play. I showed up late. I hold a plant on the stage. I got nothing. 
Okay. Now, I need to learn to value what God says is his purpose in my life and in the world that he created. I'm a creature. I cannot step out of that place. I just don't have the education or the brain space to step out of my place there. I've got to embrace what God has done. Wrote this in your outline real quick before I move to this last one. The ultimate purpose for all things that exist is for them to image God's exalted, glorious nature and character into creation to the praise and worship of his name. All things, all things, including the things that feel like they are in my possession. Don't you think you own some things? Or under my power or have significant impact on my life story. Before they answer to my purpose and preference, they answer to God's. I can never lose sight of that or my life will become miserable to manage. Second motivating principle in life motivation 101 is we are motivated for the good of others. All right, so I'm about to do something this week. I'm about to live in a category. I'm about to relate to somebody. I'm about to have a conversation. I'm about to spend some money or not spend some money. I'm about to do all kinds of things. Why am I doing that? Well, I need to first be doing it for the glory of God. And secondly, I need to make sure that I am motivated for the good of others. That's the other principle he sets here. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And, and listen, without the first thing we just talked about, you, can't, you don't even know how to use the word good. That would be good. Why do you say that? Remember, they used the word good on Jesus one day. Strangest correction in the Bible. Guy walks up and, good teacher, and he, he corrects him. Why do you call me good? Do you have any idea how to use that word? <laughs> For something to be good, you'd have to understand what's bad. You'd have to understand who created why things exist. Because as long as something answers to the creator's purpose, it's good. When it stops doing that and it wants to do its own thing, it's bad. And so that word good, if I'm going to do good to somebody else, it's interwrapped with the purpose of God in his glory. Quick thought here. We live in a different kind of principle that frames our knee-jerk response to life. It is a a me-centric principle. It's about me. And I try to make it about me in every chance that I can. Right? So I'm going to read through these quickly. Just a couple of thoughts here to tease this out. Self-focus and self-featuring has always been a human problem. Always. So this is not new. But today... It is an enlarged problem because it is normalized and celebrated and justified. Right? You don't have to go back too far. When people behaved selfishly, not too far back, they would at least acknowledge it. Listen, I, I know that's so selfish of me. If they'd say stuff like that. Today, no one even notices. It's just what everybody's doing. It just feels so normal. As a matter of fact, then you're applauded for it. You're appreciated because you got the courage to do what you need to do for you. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here's a thought. I'm not trying to pick on this category. I'm trying to get you to see how this philosophy undercuts very important things in our lives. The argument against abortion today. <clears throat> do you want to make an argument against abortion? You want to say abortion shouldn't be happening. It doesn't get off the ground with people. 
Because, quote, a woman has the right over her own body. And that's the highest value that is there. So that's like the trump card, man. It's like the ace. You want to talk about abortion, whether it should happen, whether it's good for society, whether it's this, whether it's that. A woman has the right over her own body. That's how this is treated. That, that one statement drives the discussion in the category of abortion. At some point, that individual life, the woman, what's right for her became the governing issue in this topic. Can I just tell you, if you're going to be a culture, if you're going to be a society, if there's going to be more than just one of us, there's nothing about your life that's just about you. Nothing about your life that's just about you. Where did this scatterbrained idiocy come from? That we look at our lives as though the only factor that my life interacts with and touches and has any meaningful connection with is what's right for me. Whatever you do, it's going to spill over and touch other people. It could touch generations. It could touch your neighbor. It could touch your wife, your husband, your children. Touch all kinds of people. You're never just doing something that's just about you. Never. And why would you want to? Because when God created... He created two, so there's already a problem. And then he told them to multiply. (laughs) If it was just supposed to be what's right for you, it had just been Adam. And how glorious would that have been that every day, day in and day out, Adam does what's right for him. And God is like, look at that. (laughs) There it is, guys. There's the image right there. Look at that guy just doing what's right for him. 24-7. Oh, Adam, today is even better than yesterday. Incredible. No, no, God creates relational connections that you and I have been taught. Get rid of them. Distance yourself from them. Loosen those binds as much as you create your own distance in your own space. Well, there's a higher value than your own body is what you answer to. It's in this passage. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So a person considering abortion is under the mandate to consider what's good for the child. Not just what's good for you, the mom. The Bible holds that out, that our consideration as human beings, we are created by God to image him. God is other aware in all that he does. And we bring that into this world. Now listen, that same attitude, right? You know, you have Roe versus Wade in the early 1970s, that attitude that fostered the idea that that could become the way of the land. It didn't stay in that category. It's in other categories now. Marriage is being eaten alive like cancer is all over it. Because for two people to to become one, they're going to have to lose some things. 
They're going to have to give up some of their individuality. They cannot make that relationship answer to one of them that now has to answer to something that belongs uniquely to both of them. And so this philosophy that says, no, 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 no. You do what's right for you. It's, it's eating at marriages. And if marriages aren't ending in divorce, they're just never even getting started these days. People won't even engage that. Because I want to be able to get out the moment this thing stops being good for me. This, this almost sounds like nobody wants this. I'm also, I'll say it to you this way as a warning. Let me warn you. If you get married, you're going to lose yourself. How many of y'all want to reconsider marriage right now? All right, now, the reason why that sounds like, yeah, that sort of makes sense. That doesn't sound, it's not good to lose yourself. That's not good. Okay, let's be careful. Let's read a little bit further here. And let's see how upside down we are. All right, this is Christian Motivations 101, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Is this stuff upside down or what? Well, I know it sounds great, but what are you going to do when you have to actually do it tomorrow? Well, you're going to lose a little piece of you when you do. Because there's a little piece of you that wants to do something different. And you are going to forfeit that. But are you forfeiting it for a good reason or not? Or are you just losing something? All right, one last passage here. John chapter 12. I love this verse for a lot of reasons. But I love it uniquely in what we're talking about today. Because of its context. Because there are some people coming to Jesus. This is right before he's going to be crucified his last stretch of time in Jerusalem. Festival is gathered. There are crowds gathering in Jerusalem. Jesus is this massive figure. People are curious about him. Who, who is he exactly and what's he all about? So people are going to come to him to figure out, ooh, the wise philosopher Jesus, the wise religious figure Jesus. I've got questions about life. I'm coming to him. And so that's what happens in this passage. You get these Greek guys. And that's a little bit unusual because you're in Jerusalem here, right? When we're studying the Corinthians, we're in Greece. But right now we're in Jerusalem. Place is crawling with Jews. It's not crawling with Greeks. Matter of fact, they're not welcome there in a lot of ways. But these guys are there. And they want to come have an audience with Jesus. They're curious. Look at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them right off the bat. We're not going to go too far into the conversation. You want to meet Jesus? Here you go. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Right? Don't read any farther. And what if you were ignorant of the rest of the story right now? Right, these guys come to meet Jesus, celebrity Jesus, crowds, get to be around. Gee, I got some questions for this Jesus guy. Oh, well, you are here at the right time. The fireworks are about to start. We're about to be glorified. Woohoo! 
You know the story. That's the reason why you're not going, wow, I wonder what this is going to be like. Lights and everything. Celebrities. Be like a red carpet event, I'm sure. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we know what the rest of the story is here. This is Jesus in a moment of a troubled soul. He's a troubled soul in this moment. That's reality. And if we were to ask him, Jesus, what are you about to do? What are you about to do, Jesus? What's coming up in your life? What do you got going on this week for you? What, Jesus, what are you about to do? Well, my soul is troubled. And maybe you're here this morning and you know something about a troubled soul. And that question comes to you. What are you about to do? I'm going to take the first thing Jesus didn't do. And I'm going to say, Lord, save me from this trouble. I'm going to be all over that. I'm going to be begging and pleading for what I call good, that God would move history for me in that direction. God, this is what I call good. That's got less pain in it. There's no blood in it. Uh, That over there. God, can I have your ear for a second? God, can you do that right there for me? Jesus says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. I am here to glorify God. Listen, can, can I tell you, some of us are here this morning and we, we have come to this hour and it's troubling. What are you going to do? You want to settle for something? All right, where's my... Where's my grain of wheat image. Right, here's your choices. I don't know if we really believe this or not, but this is the image that Jesus portrays. He chooses to explain to these seekers this about the kingdom of God. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. See the little pile right there? That's a, those are grains of wheat. There's a couple of them that stick out, right? Got a couple of them hanging out on the side over there. How many of us are just tempted to, we just, we just want to stay in that pile. That's what we want to be for the rest of our lives. We just want to be a grain of wheat. I mean, I want to be an awesome grain of wheat. I'd like to be a handsome grain of wheat. I'd like to lose a little weight grain of wheat. I'd like to make a lot of money grain of wheat. I'd like to stick out amongst the grains of wheat. So God, if you could stick me like in one of the two that's off to the side, I just want to blend in with the pile and feel like I'm insignificant. I'd like to be special. So God, I just want to be an incredible grain of wheat. Is that so hard? Is that so wrong, God? I just want to be an amazing grain of wheat. (sighs) Why is this happening and that happening and this happening and that happening? (sighs) That does not look like fun grain of wheat stuff. I just want to be a whole little kernel over here. Just, just want to live amongst other little kernels. I've got my little kernel grew. It's my posse. We're living together. 
doing life. God, can you just answer? And there's this purpose in God that says, uh, I, I really had something more like the second image in mind for you. I, I was going there with that. I, I didn't have in store for you that you just, this little grain of wheat who just stays about being a little grain of wheat and that's all you're about. No, no, I, I'm, I'm going to take your life and plant it into my purpose and, and you're going to die but there's going to be fruit that comes from your dying. You see that, that big field there? You could actually sow that field from a grain of wheat. Just one. Take some time. But that one grain could produce that field. And oh, what that field could do, huh? What impact that field could have on all kinds of people's lives that one little grain could never have. But that feels not possible unless that grain of wheat dies. And Jesus meets these guys. These Greeks are coming to figure out, hey, what are you all about, man? Well, two things I want to make sure, Mr. Greek, that you're aware of. One, what you need me to do for you is you need me to die for you. I'm the grain of wheat. It's going to lay down his life so that it can be taken up in so many other lives, in so many other ways for all of eternity. But he doesn't waste any time and turn around and say, do you want to follow me? Because if you do, you can't love your life. You have to be okay with losing it because you're going to be a grain of wheat too. And you're never going to do what I did. Not a person who's ever going to die for what Jesus died for. But you're going to die. In a lot of ways, you're going to die so that your life can be taken up in others. So therefore, it'll be easy for you to recognize, don't ever live a principle that doesn't have you looking out for others because you're going to die for the sake of others over and over and over again. And don't waste your life believing the garbage in this world that that's a booby prize. It's the life of the Son of God that he calls us to live as well. And maybe you can't see the full harvest. Maybe this is generations from now. There are some of you here that are generationally blessed. You had some little grain of wheat great-grandmother who embedded her life sacrificially into other people's lives. And that life got taken up and taken up and taken up. And you are now living in a field that looks like that because that little grain of wheat chose not to do what was just right for her. But she embraced a death that produced life. Listen, this, this is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom is like. It's not a bad deal. It's what brings glory to God. Do you want something different than that? Why is that not attractive to us? Why does that not make our hearts leap? You mean I? I could bring glory to God? Me? You you know me? I'm a nobody. I'm from River Ridge. But I could bring glory to God? What could compare to that? So what am I going to do this week? Well, a bunch of things, but why am I going to do them? I'm going to do them all for the glory of God. 
and for the good of others. Every day, every moment of my life. Let's stand up together. Lord, I thank you that this morning you you find us in our stories. You stop us in our tracks. And you say things to us that may just not be what we thought we needed to hear, but they're what exactly we needed to hear. Lord, we're like those Greeks who we're here this morning at church for whatever reason. But you're telling us what we need to hear. And you're jumping right to the point. There are some that are here this morning. You need to hear the, the God who says what he came to do before you start thinking about what you're supposed to be doing. He came to tell you that he needed to die so that he could give life to you. You and I could never have life if Jesus wasn't that grain of wheat who embraced death so that we could live. Listen, if you're here this morning and there's not a place in your life that you can remember that you stopped stared this Jesus Christ who died in your place in the face and received what he did into your life. If you've never done that, you can do that this morning and you need to do it. Every one of us at some point have got to turn to Jesus in faith. Say, Lord, the death that you died for me was so that life could be mine. If you want that life this morning, receive it. Tell him. Have a conversation with Jesus Christ right now. Use words that make sense to you. Reach out to him. Tell him, Jesus, I know you died. And I understand you died for me. You died to forgive me of my sins. To cleanse me. To make me right with God. God, I believe that this morning. I believe that. And God, I'm so thankful. Jesus, thank you. And you did that for me. Now this morning, Lord, this morning, October 6th, this morning, God, I, I want to receive that. I don't want that just to be something I know about. I want you to come. Give me your life, the life that you laid down so that you could take it up and give it again. God, give me that life this morning. I invite you to come into my life into my heart, into my future. I do want to follow you for the rest of my life. So if you just prayed that prayer, if those are your words to Christ in faith this morning, well then he's taken you up on that and he actually is come to live inside your life from this day forward to call you to something incredible to live a life for the glory of God from this day forward. Listen, we're here because we want to help encourage that. 
So if this morning you prayed that prayer for the first time, would you, would you come forward and find me or one of the other pastors or leaders up that you've seen maybe up here this morning? We're just going to gather in the front of the church afterwards. Just come find us and tell us this morning you prayed that prayer. Let us encourage you in following Jesus from this day forward. Nobody needs to show their hand on this, but life is so full, isn't it? Isn't there a thousand things you got going on right now? All kinds of people, all kinds of situations you're responding to, things you're stewing over, you are PO'd about a few things. What What are you about to do? What are you about to do? You have something really hard in front of you? Something that you're scared of, you're just intimidated about. You just don't know how to do that. You don't even like doing that. Is that in front of you? What are you about to do? Are you going to let your own limitations and your own life call the shots? Are you going to let your impulses? Are you finally mad enough to do something? So now, now I'm going to do something because I'm mad now. What are you about to do? And why are you going to do it? This is, this is not a taskmaster that I'm about to tell you to do. This is like opening an oxygen tent into your life until you get to stop holding your breath. Whatever you're about to do, does it bring glory to God? And is it for the good of others? Good in the sense of its relation to the glory of God. Does it bring glory to God? And if you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, I've got a bunch of things on my list that, no, I'm, I'm doing it because I'm, I'm sick and tired. I'm doing it because I feel sorry for myself. I'm doing it because I'm mad. That's why I'm doing it. But you need to stop in your tracks this morning and not do that. You need to stop this morning and say, God, I, I'm going to do this for your glory. Does what I'm about to do bring glory to you? Because if it doesn't, I'm not doing it. If it does, oh God, as hard as it might be for me, I'm going to do that. You got people in your life tempted to relate to them for reasons. They've shut off their affection to you. You've shut your affection off for them. They want nothing to do with you. You want nothing to do with them. Is that why you're doing what you're doing? So somebody else is writing your script. Their deficiencies, their problems, their stumblings, that gets to tell you who you're going to be next. Christianity? Do good to them. Figure out what glorifies God and do toward them what is good for them. Don't seek what works for you. Seek what is good for them. That's what Jesus meant. You're going to follow me? That's the principles to live by. You dismiss us with that. Father, Go with us into whatever it is we're about to do. Lord, may these two simple principles traffic in every moment and every day. That everything, Lord, our longing is that it brings glory to you. Everything. Lord, maybe we've found with every person that our lives are ever in contact with. That we don't look out just for our own good, but for the good of others. Lord, send us with those simple motivations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.